Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by a guest who has talked with us previously. Dr. John Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, on the web at Mainstream Mental Health, that's all this one word, dot O-R-G. Dr. Huber is a clinical forensic psychologist. He's the host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio, which is heard nationwide. And he has uh, done a lot of things in media. He's been a guest on our program a number of times previously. One of the things that we're going to talk about today is an area that seems to be fascination for many people. And this is this idea, because you see um, television programs about this. You see movies about uh, these kind of topics, uh, books, magazine articles, um, radio shows surrounding this idea of true crime and also talk about serial killers. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program, Dr. Huber. Thank you, Bob. Anytime. I love, I love working with you. Why is it, here's a nice way to start us in discussion, <laughs> good open-ended question. Why are we so fascinated by true crime and serial killers? Well, I think we all have a fascination with the quote-unquote dark side. You know, we, we have amazing fairy tales built about the dark side. And this is a part of human nature that is the dark side for most of us, that other people actually go there. And when we think about you know, going down the highway and you're in your car and somebody cuts you off and you think, oh, if I had a gun or if I could just ram them really hard, you know, but we don't do that. But there's part of us that just has for an instant, what if? Well, these people have gone way beyond what if. And it's very seductive to us. We want to know what makes their mind tick. We want to imagine what it must be like. And so when we hear, you know, Ted Bundy talking about taking the life and and uh, what what was going on in him physiologically, mentally, we're, we're just drawn to that, you know. And then we sit back and we see people like like Jeffrey Dahmer, who struggled with significant issues, and that drove him to killing people and then eating their bodies. And unfortunately for for society, we kind of lost an opportunity because he was you know killed by other inmates. Uh, in a maximum security facility, but we want to know what makes them tick. We want to maybe break through that hard exterior and think, wow, what if my kid is going through this? What if my uncle is this next John Wayne Gacy clown killer? And it's very seductive. And part of the fascination may surround the whole idea that some of these people... You know, you look at someone like Ted Bundy. He has this charm, this charisma that he used to lure a lot of victims. But the thing is, he also ultimately talked so 
openly and freely and in detail about what he had done. I mean, is that kind of what surprises yet draws us in? Well, you know, Ted Bundy meets the criteria for this sociopath, the mentality of sociopathy that we talk about that, you know, we use to describe people who commit these kinds of heinous crimes. He, you know, his psychological profile shows that of antisocial personality disorder. And you look at that, you, one of the key components to that is the narcissism. That's where he likes to and enjoys going down that road and telling you and describing in detail what goes on because he encapsulates everybody and draws them in and he's in control of the situation and that feeds that narcissism. It's very easy for someone like that to fall into, you know, look at this and grand grandiosity is part of it. And it's part and parcel of that sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder. But he also has that charisma that makes you feel like three minutes after you've met him that you've known him your whole life. In fact, that is one of the telltale benchmark signs of a true psychopath or sociopath, in which the words are used interchangeably. Um, one was more popular in the 70s. Now we move to psychopathy today. Uh, but they're essentially interchangeable. And it's funny because I go into court as a forensic psychologist and other psychologists who may not have ever worked or sat in a cell with a serial killer or across from a serial rapist. And they don't know that benchmark that they feel like this person is their best friend when they walk out of that room. And I've had people write full psychological batteries to go to the court and say, yes, he meets the criteria. However, I've I'm not making the diagnosis because he was so charismatic and he made me feel like I'd known him his whole life. And I'm thinking that is the biggest red flag right there, that this person is a true psychopath. And that's what I bring home to the judges in that situation. And sometimes the judges get it. Sometimes they don't. You know, all I can do is take them to the trough. And if they choose to drink, that's their choice. How scary is it to be in a situation where you're sitting across a table or in a cell in a room with someone who has perpetrated one of these really heinous crimes. Well, you know, and I get asked that a lot when you go into a prison, how do you deal with all those people who could harm you? And I go, well, you know, I I started my career as a school psychologist and I'd walk onto a campus, a high school campus. And there are always kids that if they haven't already harmed somebody are potentially going to as adults, And I don't know which one is there is going to harm me and potentially could harm me. When I walk into a prison, every one of them can. So you kind of mentally prepare yourself. You don't do uh, things that aren't safe. You keep your back to a wall. If if you let somebody behind you, it's because there's a guard with them, Uh, those types of things. And I've been in a cell that was, you know, roughly big enough to put a small desk in. And I did a psychological battery on this person, lasted a little over three and a half hours, and the, the prison actually went on lockdown, and I was stuck in that room for another five hours with that person. So those thoughts did go through my mind, what if, what if, what if? And uh, the reality of it is they're so charming that 
that person in that situation actually brought the tension down and started talking about, you know, if he were to get out of prison, what types of restaurants he would look for and where he would like to go. Something that is very benign, but we all can understand food and we love food. We, you know, it feeds us, it nourishes us. And he, he was very good at that. My advantage I have as a forensic psychologist, usually I'm going in there, A, either for that person's attorney or for the judge. And if that person behaves well with me, that gets back to the judge. And it looks good for them, and it increases the likelihood that they may be eligible for parole. For example, you know, in New York State, we've got son of Sam, David Berkowitz. He's actually, he qualifies for parole. Now, he has to go before a parole board and get it approved and all that, and, and that's probably not happening in his future. But he technically is a point where, I think it was in 2002 or 2003, he could have started requesting parole hearings to potentially get out of prison. You know, a lot of people who are listening to our talk today were alive at that time when son of Sam, David Berkowitz, basically terrorized New York City. And to some extent, um, fascinated the nation. In the case of someone like David Berkowitz, is there a way to really kind of actually understand what it is that motivates him? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because one of the things as a psychologist, when I began my training, that I, I was told I had to do was to be able to put myself in those people's shoes for me to be able to help them. And I'll be the first person to tell you I've worked with enough really bad people, but that's the last thing you want to do. You need to be able to go home and be at peace with the world. Uh, so trying to understand them from that kind of a perspective may not be the healthiest thing for people to do. So what I try to talk to people about is is look at drives, what motivates these people, and realize that they're not thinking the same way you do. Their reality is different. Just because you don't understand why maybe killing somebody is the only time that they feel sexually complete or complete as a human being doesn't mean you have to understand that. You know, you may get that same feeling by being present with your spouse. That feeling may make you feel complete and know within yourself how strong and how powerful that is in everything you do. You know, that that day you have a bad day at work and you just want to tell your boss to, you know, take the job and shove it, so to speak. And then you sit back and you go, but I love my wife or my husband and I need to be there for them and this is part of it. And you don't move on that action. Even when it's a really bad, bad situation, people sit there and suffer through that for other people. Now, think about that same kind of motivation, only here's a situation where you really don't care about other people. So harming them does not affect you emotionally. So why not kill them to make yourself feel complete and whole in that moment? Now, I'm not saying that that's, that's an appropriate response at all. It is a bad response, and I don't want people to die and be harmed, but that is a lot of what's in that whole situation. And I don't really recommend people in all the 
thousands of students I've, I've trained at, at university, you know, when I talk to them, it's like, you probably really don't want to empathize and understand where they're coming from because it's not necessarily very healthy for you as a human being to get back to your normal life. Dr. John Huber is talking with us on our program on The Fan on this Sunday morning. A lot to take in looking around the sporting world. We'll take a pause in our discussion, continue in our chat with Dr. Huber this Sunday morning. Dr. John Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health on the web at MainstreamMentalHealth.org. Dr. Huber is a clinical forensic psychologist. What exactly is that, by the way? Well, I'm clinically trained as a clinical psychologist, and then I have extra special training in forensics. In other words, the, the word forensic means pertaining to law. And at a basic point, I I started off studying how to do competency to stand trial evaluations. And then I moved on working with different groups, including child custody evaluations. I've worked on some very high-profile child custody evaluations. Um, And there's certain procedures that are very different in the courtroom versus in a therapy session that is hard for most practitioners of mental health care to understand, and, and it's it's difficult to manage those. Uh, for example, the courtroom is adversarial. In a therapy session, I go into the premise that the people are there because they want help, so why would they lie to me? In a forensic setting, that's absolutely a given that they're going to be lying to me because they want to make themselves look as good as possible for the judge. So, now I have to do things a little bit different. When I do my evaluations, for example, in a forensic setting, I always include some kind of test or part of a test that goes through and checks on uh, malingering, faking good, faking bad, and outright lying. Because I, I have to be able to answer that question when the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney goes, well, how do you know this person isn't lying to you? And uh, that's not something that I look at necessarily in a regular therapy session because most times people are in there, they want help, and they're going to be brutally honest and, you know, make themselves not necessarily look too good because they don't come to me when they win the lottery. When we talk about the um, popularity, like, of the various true crime shows that I alluded to back at the beginning of our Mm -hmm. discussion, do we have to... Do we almost have to watch how much of that we're consuming? Well, I think we should all be cautious with just, you know, living our lives through a screen, whether it's your tablet or your phone or a television screen. Uh, We have to manage that and balance it out with real-world activity. Uh, the, The nature of these crime scene shows and, you know, are not necessarily... Devastating. I mean, you know, just recently they had the Netflix show with Ted Bundy and stuff like that, and it was a great little show. I've seen it. Uh, But the thing is, I did my studies in South Florida, and I got access to a lot more information, a lot more videos, a lot more interviews than what was in there. And the show did a good job of rightfully not showing America and the everyday population things that really are just too disturbing, and the majority of people probably don't need to see that. Unfortunately, it had a 
had a potential and actually, I think for a lot of people did kind of glamorize Ted Bundy. But uh, the, the reality is, I think they'd have a harder time handling some of the information he said. And I think being part of media, being a forensic psychologist, I think part of what I can do, and I think part of what most of the producers and the people who put these shows together, is they do a pretty good job of saying, okay, that's enough. We don't need to tell or show any more of this for them to realize this person's a bad person. So why would we be doing that uh, unless we wanted to hurt the general population? I think we do a good job of filtering that out. So I think they're generally safe. If you have maybe some lower cognitive abilities or some sort of personality disorder or maybe borderline autistic kind of situation, it may be problematic for you. And it's definitely not for young kids. And when we talk about serial killers and in a way about some of this fascination that people have with um, the crimes that they've committed. It almost seems like um, at times they can be ranked. You know, you you mentioned Ted Bundy before and it's, it, it almost gets into, well, how many victims did this person have? How many victims did that person have? Um, and you kind of get drawn into examining that. But while doing that, it's almost like at the same time thinking to myself, wait a minute, what am I really doing? We're talking about human lives here that somebody took. And in many cases, in really brutal and in some cases, disgusting ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we sometimes it's a numbers game. Sometimes one of the reasons why they get ranked so high is not necessarily because of the numbers, but the brutality is so extreme. I mean, uh, you know, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, those are kind of like national headlines. You talk about how it froze New York City. Well, you know, New York City is kind of the mecca of the United States. And some people would argue one of the main meccas of the world. Uh, and it, it shut down and terrorized the people in Houston, the people in Dallas, the people in San Francisco, because, you know, what if that happens here? And we watched in awe and in fear. And uh, uh, when we finally got a hold of this person that was responsible for this, we all sat back and took a, a collective sigh of relief. But when we look at the Jeffrey Dahmers, you know, Dahmer was out there, and we really didn't know much about him until we caught him. And then the nation took heed uh, because the crimes were so uh, extreme. His standard operating procedure was very uh, bizarre, you know, ingesting human flesh. And we were able to get to some of his incompleteness and how he was trying to absorb the essence of other people after reading some American Indian history where they talk about counting coup and becoming one with the animals and getting extra speed by eating the heart of the deer and, you know, extra ferociousness by eating the heart of a bear that they killed. Well, he kind of said, hey, I feel complete when I'm engaged in certain activities with this person. If I keep them and ingest their heart or ingest body parts, maybe 
that will make me feel complete and whole throughout the rest of my day and throughout my rest of my life. That never happened, and he continued to try and search for that completeness. But uh, that gives us insight now. So when we see people who are methodically being killed and then bodies being consumed, we start thinking, okay, is this somebody else who's got some of the same problems? So we can start looking at Dahmer's profile and try to find a profile of a potential perpetrator or, or uh, a killer in that same scenario and try to make the pieces fit. We go to the Green River killer who didn't make my top five list, uh, and he's particularly heinous because after he would kill the individuals, he would come back and visit them later for more gratification. And that's disturbing on several levels. And part of what's disturbing about that is because uh, the way he would leave the bodies, but that ultimately led to his downfall and capture. So, you know, if he hadn't have done that, he may still have gotten away with everything and never gotten caught because he was an unusual serial killer in that he perpetrated uh, with several years, sometimes a decade between killers or between killings. And he perpetrated over two or three decades before he got caught versus the average serial killer who is caught within two to three years of starting their rampage. One name that has not been mentioned thus far in our discussion and always comes up when we talk about serial killers, interestingly enough, is someone who did not actually kill with his own hands, but ordered his followers to do so. Charles Manson. I mean, what kind of mindset was that? Oh, well, he's that megalomaniac narcissist. And, uh, you know, he, he was kind of fun. I wish I could have met him, uh, you know, in, in a morbid kind of way. Uh, I, I'd like to have sat down and, and been able to spend a little bit of time with him and, and try to pick his brain. Of course, uh, he may or may not have cooperated. We know how that goes. But very narcissistic, very power-hungry, and he got a lot of power needs met through controlling people. And the argument also would be is he wasn't a serial killer. He was a mass killer, a mass murderer, and he had other people doing his crimes for him. Uh, so he, he, we could debate that all day long, but he is definitely somebody we have to talk about when we talk about serial killers because, like you said, he is so significant. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you have these kind of cult leader narcissists like this, and they end up all committing suicide. But he kind of took a spin on that. Instead of having them all kill themselves, he had them kill people outside of his group that he, he felt somehow were, were evil or bad for the world or himself. He laid judgment on them, and that was, that was all there was. Is there a way to understand and I realize I'm putting that term in quotes, some of the motivation, some of what drove John Wayne Gacy. I mean, this oh, whole idea of clown the killer. killer clown. I mean, first thought that comes to mind is where on earth did that come from? <laughs> well, you know, clowns have a bad rap and uh, they, they send us a lot of different uh, messages it's definitely a facade, so we don't really know what the person underneath that clown costume is actually feeling. 
I think in a lot of ways, I think that was uh, a benefit for John Wayne Gacy. His family felt like he never really engaged with any of them. He never supported his kids, like in their sports or in their academic stuff, never would show up to sporting events or games that they were in. He was very detached. His spouse reported him being very detached, never really feeling like uh, she she was in a real true union with him. And uh, that is, again, one of those things that kind of fits in with that whole serial killer narcissist thing. But uh, it is that facade he put forward with his family. He sh- his family was like another clown uniform. See, look how normal I am. And then he give, that gave him more opportunity to go and perpetrate more crime. So he, he he's a scary kind of guy because, you know, we see clowns and we know somebody's giving us a front. We know it's not real. We know it's a fake. But how many people do we see walking down the street every day with their family, with with their company that they're running, that they're a fake, too? And underneath it, they're this evil person that is running her muck. And we really should not let our our you know, naivete or let our guard down, so to speak. Dr. John Huber, the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, uh, talking with us on our program. He's a clinical forensic psychologist. He's also the host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio. Um, Mainstream Mental Health, can you explain what that is? It is a nonprofit organization designed to destigmatize mental health. Uh, I, I believe firmly that the more we understand about mental health, mental health issues, the less fear we'll have about it as a society. I think one of the biggest problems I have dealing in hospitals that I go to when the doctors write orders for me to walk in and see the patient is to beat this stigma before I can ever actually get to deal with the patient, whatever problem they have. And uh, after doing that for you know, several years going pretty close to a decade, the doctors are like, look, quit, quit complaining about it and do something or uh, just quit, quit complaining altogether. So I started mainstream mental health. And the whole idea is I want mental health issues to be mainstream. I want you to be able to talk about them at the dinner table. I want you to be able to talk about them at work and not feel like uh, you will be minimized or threatened because it's not a broken thing. It's a human thing. Dr. Huber, thank you very much for joining us on our program. As always, a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Bob. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. We move into a discussion now with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul is an autistic adult and author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. He is joining us on our program. We're going to share an awful lot in our discussion. We're also going to be talking about this uh, new comedy from uh, Netflix that looks very interesting and promising as well. Uh, Paul, first of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. In beginning this discussion, I like to start as simply as possible. Let's do a little bit of your background. I mentioned the fact you are an autistic adult. I also mentioned the fact of the book that you have authored. Let's talk in your background. Um, How do you explain what autism is? 
So explaining autism is always very difficult, but I, I try to talk to people about the fact that it is a developmental disorder. So a lot of people think of it as a series of symptoms, but it's really about the changes in the brain that lead to those symptoms. Um, we tend to have social challenges. We tend to not pick up on tone of voice uh, or body language. Uh, we may have social communication delays, which means that we can have difficulty with the parts of communication that are around like the experiential bit, the personal experience. Uh, a lot of people with autism are verbal, but tend to be focused on talking about their interests and things like that, and not very much on the social side of conversation. Uh, some of us are nonverbal, uh, often because uh, other elements of autism are, are preventing us from developing those skills, that, that part of ourselves. Um, it often comes with sensory issues, uh, hyper-hyposensitivity, uh, more sensitive or less sensitive to various things, uh, sound, sight, things like that. Um, and then the, the sort of obsessive behavior uh, uh, and black and white thinking, where we, we tend to find ourselves limited in experiencing things as absolutes and often uh, more comfortable in areas where there are consistent rules and consistent uh, uh, just black and white things to, to exist within so that we don't have to deal with the ambiguity of the world. Uh, Again, it's, it's hard to explain because a lot of it is experience and just a list of symptoms that can vary so much from person to person that, you know, it's hard to not really recognize well without uh, an expert to consult. Well, that leads into an area that I was thinking about in advance of our discussion today, and that is about the idea of um, societal or public misconceptions about autism, you know. You, you say autism, and we very often hear these reports talking about the um, prevalence of autism or the incidence of autism in our society. And the numbers, you know, are in some areas geographically um, relatively low, so that there's a high incidence of autism uh, presence. A lot of people know someone who's autistic, or they themselves may be on the spectrum, have a family member on the spectrum. What about those misconceptions? How do we go about, or how can we go about perhaps changing them? Well, one of the, the biggest things is that, you know, right now, the, the big push is still autism awareness, just getting people to recognize that it does have a high incidence rate. It does have, you know, that it's out there because, you know, before that, a lot of people had heard the word, but the only place that ever seen it is maybe in Rain Man or, uh, you know, a sitcom or, or just, you know, a very special episode of something. And so uh, one of the changes, one of the things I push for is, is understanding rather than awareness, is uh, getting people to get the idea that, that we're people um, and, and understand that, that autism is one of those things that we're just now from a diagnostic side, really beginning to get a better understanding of uh, the fact that autism is largely genetic, not in the sense that uh, uh, genes are solely responsible for it, but in the sense that uh, in many, many cases, uh, 
you know, the, there are genes that show a higher risk of autism. Uh, it's, you mentioned that it being geographical, there's a few, you know, reasons that one, we know that, uh, High air pollution um, makes it more likely for – if the mother is exposed to high air pollution, it makes it more likely that her children may be autistic. Um, and again, there's still a genetic risk there, but it's sort of like if you're genetically vulnerable to it, then factors may be able to trigger it. Um, and also just because we have this example where you know it clusters because of where services are. Uh, you know, there, there's a higher number of autistic children in Phoenix, but part of that is because Phoenix has good autism services. And uh, considering how hard it is to get basic services for autism in a lot of places, people are willing to pick up their whole lives and move to find good services. So one of the things is, is we still have a hard time studying a lot of this just because uh, the availability of services and, and uh, doctors and things like that is so regional that you know it distorts any data we might collect and when we talk about the i guess incidence of autism diagnosis of it has that gotten better uh the diagnosis of autism has improved profoundly over the last 10 or 15 years the new dsm in particular uh came out a few years ago rolled Asperger's autism and PDAD NOS, which was sort of a catch-all for autism-like symptoms that didn't quite make an autism diagnosis, rolled them all into one that, that better clarifies um, what the autism symptoms look like. Part of the challenge still is that um, it, it's based on behavior. We don't have a, a blood test or a scan or anything like that for autism. So it's based on behavior, which means that you spot autism by how different someone is from what they are expected to be. And so autism in the U.S. looks one way. Autism in Japan can look a bit different and so on. Um, we've gotten a lot better at spotting it, but we still have a, a long way to go. And so part of the reason we have the high diagnosis rate that we have right now, not the only reason, but part of the reason is definitely because uh, we've become so much better at spotting it that we're realizing that it kind of always was out there at this high level, but people with autism were falling through the cracks. You get a lot of adults now with autism who, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who receive a diagnosis, but it's more for their peace of mind going, oh, I always knew I was struggling with things, but they, they found ways to make it work. And now we're catching individuals like that early where maybe if they didn't receive a diagnosis, they'd still go on to have a successful life if they, you know, had to struggle harder than everyone around them to do it, maybe not. And so we are catching a lot more of those edge cases. We're catching a lot more of the ones that look different. Um, you know, autism, the current numbers show that it's three or four more times as likely in boys as girls. And we're still working on whether that's an issue of, uh, you know, the genetic side of it or whether it's an issue of us still being really bad at diagnosing it in girls because, again, it, it shows up in differences. And a lot of those differences are tailored around what those differences look like in boys right now. So we're improving, but there's still a long way to go. What about the idea of promoting better understanding of what it's like to be an autistic adult? I think that's um, extremely valuable just because uh, one of the big challenges with autism is that often when you treat autism in 
you know, a, a child uh, or a moderate to low-functioning individual, as things improve, you still end up with a high-functioning individual who will be an adult one day. And those of us who are those adults, uh, you know, you get out of high school and there's very little in the way of services. Uh, when I tried to get help at college, they didn't really have anything for me after I received my diagnosis, uh, more time on tests, which wasn't something that was beneficial to my set of symptoms at all. Um, the situation has improved. I mean, this was 12 years ago. Uh, but one of those things is that, uh, you know, we're out there, we're looking for employment, we're looking for, you know, romance, we're looking for friends, we're looking for having lives. And, uh, you know, the, the current situation is often that we're expected to explain ourselves, tell an employer what we need, everything. And so we have a disability and we have to work harder to get what we need with our disability. And so I think better understanding, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that are focusing on employing individuals with autism and they're finding great success in the fact that they have enough understanding to, you know, you know, you can't, every individual with autism is different, but they have enough understanding to know the right questions to ask to help that autistic individual uh, explain what their challenges are and find a, a job that, that suits them. Uh, and they're, they're finding that there's a lot of success that those of us with autism, due to some of our autism symptoms, may be more comfortable with repetitive tasks or may be more focused on details than an ordinary person or, or have other aspects of ourselves that we're comfortable using in our employment to, to help us do a better job at certain tasks. And so there's been some success there and understanding what autism looks like and how to talk with an autistic person is a, a huge part of making that work. We're talking with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul is a noted public speaker, a radio show host, author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. He's joined us by phone on our program. Be an element for everyone else to grow around. Uh, you know, the, the story is, here's the struggle of the mother. Here's the struggle of the friend, but not here's the struggle of the autistic individual. So, Looking at this show and looking at what little we have, what Netflix has said about it, I, I see a lot of potential, and it, it does, for lack of a better word, feel like a show where we're actually going to see the autistic individual struggle based on what little we have. So I'm hopeful, but cautiously hopeful. What do you think about the idea of autistic people dating? Um, as one who has dated, uh, I'm in favor of it, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's challenging. Um, you know, especially when we're younger, we're often ready for dating a little later than other people are, a few years later or more. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the misconceptions you have about dating, um, you know, going into it, the, the honest truth is that 16, nobody's really ready to date. We're not ready to have the conversations with our partner to really understand that it's, it's two people in this and we both need to have compromise and have understanding and everything. Um, one of the challenges with autism is we tend to be black and white thinkers. And so we can pick up misconceptions about dating from TV shows, and romantic comedies, that it's about the pursuit that, you know, once you're with someone, that's the end. Uh, because it's so often showed that way in the media. And not all of us do this, but it, it's sort of easier for us to pick those up. It's easier for us to get stuck on those. And so we don't necessarily 
have a plan. We don't have a, a mental picture of relationships. We have, you know, we're, we're trying to be normal. And so relationships are normal. So I'm in favor of it. But I think that a lot of times we benefit from a parent or a therapist or someone talking through what it really means to, to have a relationship with another person, to have the give and take. And then, of course, there's the challenges of, you know, once you're in it, you know, hopefully before you're in it, you've told them you have autism um, and, and the challenges that come with uh, being someone's partner, but but being on the autism spectrum, which which can mean that, you know, there's a lot of additional challenges that, that may spring up along the way. Paul, tell us a little bit about your book, Behind the Locked Door. So I discovered uh, after, you know, working with therapy and everything is that uh I am more verbal than a lot of people on the autism spectrum, and in particular, I'm more able to talk about my personal experience. Um, I did radio and things and, and found that uh, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, hey, I took this clip from your show and used it to explain something to my parent, my teacher, whatever, because I couldn't find the words for it myself. And so I, I wrote this book as a collection of, of experiences uh, about romance, about friendship, about education, employment, hygiene, things like that. Um, just what I experienced with those, what I learned with those, what my thoughts are, um, examples from my life, things like that. Um, and the hopes that it helps people who don't have autism better understand how the autistic person might experience things, as well as giving individuals on the spectrum the opportunity to say, hey, you know, what happens with me is similar to this right here. Most interesting discussion with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul, as I mentioned, is an autistic adult author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. Thank you very much for sharing that insight with us and also sharing some of your thoughts with us on uh, this program. Good luck with your book. Uh, thank you so much. That does it for our show. Enjoy the day, everybody. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.